Pastor. What a joy to be back here at Bible Baptist Church. And uh, hardly seems possible a year has gone by since we uh, were just here. And uh, thank the Lord for many of you that are faithful and being in your place tonight on this Saturday night. You know, I, I was uh, kind of trying to figure out today what the chili cook-off was all about. I've never seen so many people involved in a chili cook-off in all my life. I obviously don't understand all that the chili cook-off involves, but it has to be more than chili because there were a lot of people, uh, and I got in the wrong lane on one particular occasion today, and I, I was headed to it, and I didn't want to go to it uh, uh, without any choice, and the policeman wasn't real kind in his uh, words, but I had the windows up. I didn't hear them, so I just kept going, but uh, thank you for being here tonight, and uh, uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to be with you in these few days. Take your Bibles. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19, if you will, the book of 1 Kings and chapter 19, we'll read a few verses as a text, and then I'll kind of catch us up to where we are here in the Word of God. First Kings chapter 19, and let's read starting in verse number 9, and I'll read down to verse 12. First Kings 19, and starting with verse 9. Speaking about Elijah, the Bible says, And he came thither unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. You know, 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19 are some of the noisiest chapters in all the Bible. If you go back and, and look at these chapters, a lot is happening in the nation of Israel. Elijah, the prophet of God, is disgusted with the way that Israel is now responding to God and his word. For the king, Ahab, and Jezebel, his wife, have led the nation of Israel. These are God's people, of course. And he's led them into all kinds of wicked, idolatrous worship, particularly the worship of Baal. And Elijah is fed up. He's tried to take a stand. He's tried to preach the word of God. But he's come into resistance against Ahab and Jezebel. And so in chapter 17, Elijah begins to pray. Now remember, Elijah's a man subject to like passions as we are, James tells us. He's no different than you and I. Sometimes we look at these men in the Bible and we think they were superheroes. You know, they had some special power or something like that. But the Bible makes it clear that Elijah was a man just like you and I just flesh and blood, but he goes to God. And he says, God, I want you to stop the rain. I don't want to see it rain on the earth for three and a half years. You ever prayed a prayer that difficult before? I mean, that's asking an awful lot for God to stop the rain. 
In fact, he says, Lord, I don't even want to do on the ground for three and a half years. And God answered his prayer. As we come into chapter 18, the times have become very desperate as there's no water, has not rained for three and a half years, no water to keep the animals, the mules, the beasts alive. And Ahab is beginning to panic and he's searching for water and there just isn't any. And finally, we find in chapter 18, Elijah, this prophet of God, and this wicked king Ahab coming face to face. Now, Ahab thought that Elijah was dead because they haven't seen him for three and a half years. In chapter 17, we find that Elijah, during this time, is up at the brook Cherith, where God is uh, giving him the waters from that brook and, and feeding him from the birds twice a day as they come and bring him his meals. And then when that brook Cherith dried up, God sent him down to the widow's house and God sustained her meal for the duration of this famine. So King Ahab hasn't seen Elijah in three and a half years and he thinks he's dead. In fact, it says in chapter 18 that Ahab had taken an oath or had made a promise before the people that the prophet of God was dead. And all of a sudden he's face to face with him and verses 16 and 17 of chapter 18, and, and they're, they're kind of back and forth here about whose fault it is that all this trouble has come to Israel. And finally, after some discussion, they decide to have a contest on the top of Mount Carmel, and you know the story, I'm sure, where they go up there, and the false prophets, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and 400 prophets of the groves, 850 false prophets against one prophet of God, and they both built an altar, and they both took turns praying, and, and uh, the, the false prophets, they prayed, and nothing happened. Elijah prays, and fire falls. Amazing story. And after that fire falls, Elijah, he takes those false prophets down to the brook uh, Kishon and he, and he slays them there. He, he, he takes their lives. But then in chapter 19, Jezebel, upon getting word of all of this, sends a threat. And she says, I'm going to do to you by tomorrow morning what you just did to those false prophets, those prophets of Baal. And so Elijah now in chapter 19 begins to run for his life. And we read how he comes here to this place where God says, hey, Elijah, what are you doing? And Elijah says, you know, I've been jealous for you. I've been faithful to you. And, and now I'm the only one left. They seek my life. And, and God appears to him. He pulls him out there and he appears to him. And he brings this, uh, this, this wind. And the wind begins to blow. And, and rocks begin to fall. The mountains are rent in pieces. But the Bible says God wasn't in the wind. And then God sends an earthquake. I don't know if you've ever been in one. I've been in a couple, but nothing really major as far as an earthquake. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's not a pleasant thing, I can tell you that. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And he sent a fire. But God wasn't in the fire. God was in the still, small voice. How comfortable are you with silence? awkward, isn't it? Say something. Sound men are going crazy back there. What happened? How comfortable are you with silence? You know, we live in a day that's noisy. 
seems we can't hardly exist without noise. We got to have the television on from the time we get up in the morning. The earbuds get popped into our ears the moment we begin to move. Jump in the car, the radio's on. We're constantly listening to music or listening to the media. We come to church and, boy, there's something going all the time, some kind of activity, some kind of entertainment, doing something. But i got to tell you something. God is not in the noise. I'm convinced that revival comes when we're silent. When we become still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I'll be exalted in the earth. In Psalm 4 and verse 4, the psalmist said, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. In Psalm 32 and verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old within me. For day and night thy hand was strong upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. My iniquity have I not hid. I said I'll confess my transgression unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. You know, I think tonight we need a miracle of silence. One day the disciples were on a ship. A storm came up. Jesus was on board, but they'd kind of forgotten about him, I guess. But a storm came up and the disciples did everything they could to try to uh, uh, get that ship across that Sea of Galilee, but nothing was working. And finally they, they awoke Jesus and said, Carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus arose and rebuked the wind and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. Sometimes I think that's the miracle of revival I need in my life. Peace. Be still. Perhaps the best curriculum we could ever teach in our adult fellowship classes or perhaps at the college where I work, one of the best courses we could ever offer or maybe a class we should teach our children early on in school would be the course that's designed for us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11 where God says, and that you study to be quiet. And I think we need that course. Study to be quiet. There's a lot of noise here in 1 Kings 17 to 19. And there's lots of noise today. But the still small voice of God always cuts through three noise levels. I want you to notice them with me tonight. We first see the noise level of the hateful threats of the wicked. Now by the time we get to chapter 19, Jezebel's not a happy camper. Jezebel's on a rampage. She wants Elijah dead. Why? Well, obedience is obvious. Obedience is obvious. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. It's hard to hide that kind of action. 
you know, all of a sudden, 450 prophets of Baal are dead. All of a sudden, the religious association of that day was gone. You see, obedience is the opposite of disobedience. Righteousness is the opposite of unrighteousness. Right is the opposite of wrong. Truth is the opposite of error. And it's hard to hide that. It seems today we are bent on blending Christianity with our culture. Trying to to not be too uh, obvious. I got to tell you, a true discipleship cannot be disguised. Obedience is obvious. Elijah's obeying the Lord here. Elijah's doing exactly what God told him to do. And it was very obvious to the wicked culture what he had done. The Bible says, awake to righteousness and sin not. We live by that principle. It's going to be pretty obvious in the culture we live in. God says we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and we should be showing forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil among you, they may buy your good works glorify God in the day of visitation. Is our Christianity obvious? Or do we just kind of sneak around the noise of the world without anybody even noticing? Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? In all holy conversation and godliness, obedience is obvious. And notice, opposition is always opportunistic. You see, opposition to the Christian life, opposition is conviction acted upon. When when, when you and I as God's people live right, when you and I do what God commands us to do, that obedience becomes obvious and it convicts the hearts of those who are not saved. It convicts the hearts of those who are not right with God. And that conviction acted upon results in opposition. Jesus said in John chapter 15, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. In other words, until Jesus showed up, they thought they were pretty good. They thought they were pretty religious. They thought, hey, we're doing fine. All of a sudden, Jesus showed up and lived a sinless, perfect life. And now, all of a sudden, they didn't have any cloak for their sin. So what did they do? They they opposed Christ. Rather than repent, rather than get their own lives right with him, they opposed him. They constantly tried to find something wrong with him. They they tried to accuse him falsely. Why? Because opposition is always opportunistic. Listen, if the world hates you, you know it hated me, Jesus said, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But I'm glad that this still small voice of God is greater than the wicked threats of the wicked. It cuts through. Year of God, little children, John said, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They that are of the world, therefore they speak of the world. And the world heareth them. But we are of God, little children. And, 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 and God knoweth us. 
And he that is not of God knoweth not us, or heareth us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the still small voice cuts through that wicked threat of the, of the wicked. But notice, secondly, the still small voice of God cuts through the noise level of the heavy tears of the weary. In verse 4 of chapter 19, the Bible says of Elijah, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. You ever been there? You ever just felt like, Lord, enough is enough. Lord, I've been faithful, I've tried to do what's right, and yet my spouse, my children, my parents, you know, my boss at work, uh, these, my neighbors, these, these people around me, they, they just continually harass me, they continue to give me a hard time, They're, nobody's on my side anymore, and, and, and we just feel like, you know, where's the juniper tree? Where can I crawl up and have a pity party? We feel like we're the only ones left. Now, Elijah had had a commendable labor. If you look down in verse number 10, he, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy commandments, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Elijah had stood up to all of this, this decline in the nation. He had been very jealous for God, had been very uh, 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 faithful to God. And Elijah had, had, had called sin, sin. He had stood up against the wicked Ahab and Jezebel. He had demonstrated God's power on the top of Mount Carmel. He called the people to take a stand, to choose you this day whom you'll serve, and so on. He, he, had, he, had, he, had, he had done what was right. He, he could have said with Paul, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. But the problem was he was looking at this commendable labor through a contaminated lens. In the last part of verse 10, he said, And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He says something very similar in verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now we must always be careful about getting our eye too close to the microscope lens. Because if you get too close, all you're going to see is I. I have been very jealous. I, even I, am the only one left. They seek my life. Since when is revival about Elijah? Since when is revival about us? Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know why John the Baptist had the power of God in his life? You know why John the Baptist, it was said of him by Jesus himself, there was none greater than John, born of a woman? Because John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know why God could use someone like the Apostle Paul? Because Paul's motto was, I die daily. 
You see, when revival focuses on I, we play right into the hands of the enemy of revival. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation of the sides of the north. I will rise above the clouds. I will be like the most high. God said, no, 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 no. It's so easy in our busy noise even of ministry to get the focus on I. The Bible says in Luke chapter 10, it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She also had a sister called Mary who sat at his feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. And she said unto the Lord, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Now don't you believe that Martha's motive was correct? That Martha, upon hearing that Jesus was coming to town, wanted to do her very best. She wanted everything to be just right. I, I don't think that Martha uh, uh, in, 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 was, was motivated by a wrong motive. I think she wanted to please the Lord. She wanted to serve the Lord. She wanted to serve him the best meal, have the cleanest house. She wanted him to be comfortable. She, she loved him, the Bible says. He loved her. Uh, listen, Martha wanted to do her best. The problem was in all of that cumbering service, she got her eyes on her sister. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. The still small voice. It cuts through the hateful threats of the wicked. It cuts through the heavy tears of the weary. But then we see the still small voice of God cuts through the hidden testimony of the word. A wicked culture combined with a weary Christian produces a weakened clarity. You can see it in America tonight. You can see a wicked culture combined with some weary Christians. I mean, let's face it, it's getting a little wearisome. Trying to do what's right. Trying to just be normal is getting a little wearisome. Trying to just have some sense. It just seems like, you know, as a Christian, to live out your principles, to live out your convictions, is you're constantly going up against the flow that's going the other way. And so you have this wicked culture and weary Christians, and the combination of that weakens the clarity of the truth. But regardless of our emotion, or regardless of our evaluation of the situation, or our examination, guess what? God is still in control. God is still on the throne. And that God on the throne never changes. I am the Lord. I change not. He's never been dethroned. He's never been silenced. He always wins. But notice here a deceiving exercise. In verse 14, he said, I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You know, the devil makes us think that God has abandoned us. 
The devil loves to convince us that God is no longer good. That was his very first tactic in the Garden of Eden, was it not? Hath God said, shall not eat of all the trees of the garden. Oh, wow, he said he couldn't have that one. Oh, well, God's not very good. He, he might, he's withholding something from you. And the devil loves to get us to think that, that God no longer cares, that somehow he has set us aside, that somehow he isn't interested in our difficulties or our problems. But even if Elijah was right, he was wrong. Even if he was the only human person left, and he wasn't, we're going to see that in a minute, but even if he was, he was still wrong because Jesus says, I never leave thee nor forsake thee. You're never alone. Elijah's statement is false. He said, I even I am am the only one left and, and they seek my life. But you're never alone. You're never the only one. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In in Exodus 33 and verse 14, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. In Deuteronomy 20 and verse 1, uh, when thou goest into the battle against thine enemies and seest horses and chariots and people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee. In Isaiah 43 and verse 2, when thou passest through the waters, I'll go with thee. When thou goest through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Why? Because God is always there. We're never alone. The psalmist said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. You can't even die without him. You can't even die alone. He's there. But we see a dimmed eye. In verse 15, the Lord said unto him, Go return unto the way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel M. Hola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that when uh, him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha say, Yet I have slay, yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Somehow, Elijah thinks, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, no, I got Hazael. I got Jehu. I got Elisha. In fact, I got 7,000 more I can name. Who haven't bowed to Baal, who haven't kissed up to the wicked king. Uh, uh, Elijah, you're, you're wrong. You know, when we get focused on self, when our ears are listening to the noise of this culture we're going to be standing right in the middle of a miracle and miss it. God is still doing some amazing work here in chapter 19, but Elijah's missing it because he got tuned to the noise instead of the still, small voice of God. I wonder this week, could we ask God to give us a miracle of silence? 
Could we be still? Could we study to be quiet? I may have shared this story last year when I was here. In 1975, I was scheduled to preach three weeks of revival in the city of Los Angeles. When I arrived in L.A., I went to the first church in the city of La Puente where I was to preach and drove in the parking lot after traveling cross-country in my Volkswagen Beetle at 55 miles an hour on non-interstate highways. And uh, finally got to L.A. and, and uh, drove in that parking lot and met this guy in the parking lot who was working in some flower beds and after meeting him realized this was the pastor. And after we introduced ourselves to each other, he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm here to hold a revival. And he said, I don't know anything about that. Here I was in the city of L.A. I didn't know a soul. I was 23 years old. I, I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have a cell phone. No one had a cell phone. I, I didn't have any money. I had $36. My gas tank was empty. And here I was in the city of L.A. for six days until that next meeting would start. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I said, well, thank you. And I got back in my car and I started driving down the street. And about 10 or 12 blocks down the street, I, I came to this, what I like to call a flea bag hotel. And I pulled in there and I went inside and I asked if the manager was around and the lady said, yes, he's here. And he came out and I, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, sir, I'm, I'm going to be in your town the next six days and I need a place to stay. He said, no problem. I said, well, a little problem. I said, I only have $36. He thought for a minute and he, he reached under the counter and he grabbed some keys and he said, follow me. And we went out a back door. We went around behind that hotel and he, he opened this iron door and he pushed it back and we walked in this small room. I don't remember exactly how big it was. It wasn't very, very large and, and uh, it had a tile floor. It had a, a metal military cot with a mattress on it. There was a sink, there was a shower and there was a metal folding chair. He said, it's all yours, six bucks a night. I handed him my $36, every dime I had. I, I handed it to him. And he walked out. When he closed the door out of my peripheral, I noticed there was something up above the door. And I, I looked and there was a little shelf above the door and a small little black and white television set was sitting on that shelf. And I remember thinking, well, at least I have a TV. <laughs> and I went over and I, I, I clicked it on and, and the channel that it was, it was on was showing snow. It had kind of a black background with these white lines going across it. Like those blizzards I remembered in Wisconsin as a kid. And I thought, well, I don't want to watch any blizzards, so I, I turned it to the next channel. It was showing the same program. And I went all around those 13 channels, and they were all the same network. And I remember clicking it off, and I remember sitting on the edge of the bed. And I stayed in that room for those next six days. I never went out that door, never opened that door one time. No one ever came to the door and asked to come in. I never ate a bite of food. I'm going to tell you something. In that six days, I heard the still, small voice of God. I've often said it's the best revival meeting I've ever been in. 
There was no music. There were no sermons. There was no handshaking. <laughs> there were no meals before the service. Nothing. Just me and God in a locked room for six days. And God met with me. God changed my life. A revival of silence. A revival we can pull somehow away from the noise. And once again, hear God saying to us, I love you. I care about you. I died on the cross for you. I can save you. Once again, as Christians, we would hear him say, I, I, I know what you're going through. I know your tears. I know your heartache. I know your burden. I haven't left you. You can trust me. A revival of the still, small voice. A lot of people looking for the wind today. The earthquake, the fire. But God's not always there. But God can speak in a still, small voice if we get quiet. Let's bow tonight for prayer. As our heads are bowed in this quiet moment, what's God saying to you? Sometimes at this point in the service, we, we expect the piano to start playing. We expect an altar call. We expect some movement. We expect something to happen. But what's God saying in your heart? What does God want to say? Would you let him? Whatever he says, obey, respond. Lord, Elijah, in chapter 19, came out of some noisy events in his life. And I'm sure as he looked back upon the hours and days that preceded chapter 19, his mind whirled with all the things that had happened so quickly. And perhaps he did expect you to 
give him some new direction in that wind or that fire or that earthquake. But Lord, you needed him to just be still and listen to his voice. And Lord, I pray that this week we're going to come in every night from a lot of noise. And it's not completely unavoidable. We, we, we'll go to work. We'll, we'll care for our families. We'll have duties, responsibilities throughout the day that will no doubt clutter our minds, our hearts with so many things. And, and like Martha, we, we may get cumbered with them even. And to add revival meetings on top of it all seems to be more than we can sometimes bear. But Lord, would you allow us in these coming days, the times that we have in this building to just be able to get quiet. Not to say we shouldn't fellowship or enjoy the presence of one another and sing and, and worship you, but Lord, to quiet our heart, to allow you to speak to us. Lord, I don't know the needs of the people at Bible Baptist Church. I, I don't know the burdens. I don't know the cares. I don't know the tears. I don't know the the difficulties, I don't know the blessings. But Lord, I pray that in these days you would meet with us. And may we be sensitive and listening well enough to hear your still small voice. And Lord, how wise we are to, to respond to it. I pray you'll help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.